to love one another. When John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Remember John, uh, in 1 John, or in John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking before creation. And in uh, 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning. Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus before creation. But here, he's not talking about before creation. He's, this is the Word you heard from the beginning. From the beginning of your faith, when you first heard the gospel. That gospel message compels us to love one another. Look at these two words, these last two words in verse 11. We're to love one another. In the New Testament, we find uh, some 50 times where either Jesus or Paul or John or one of, the, uh, one of the, the writers of Scripture tells us we have certain responsibilities toward one another, toward the brothers and the sisters. We have biblical obligations within the family of faith. There are 50 different uh, instances, 25 actually distinct responsibilities. A number of those obviously are repeated. And there's one that's repeated more than any other. Ten times we find this particular responsibility, this particular obligation expressed. Anybody want to guess what that one is? It's that we're to love one another. Now, when God repeats something over and over again, what should we conclude? Should we draw the conclusion that he's forgetful and he forgot that he told us that? Or should we draw the conclusion that he knows we're forgetful and he has to tell us the same thing over and over again, particularly things that are of utmost importance? And he considers this command, love one another, to be very, very important. And he wants us to take it just as seriously as he does. In fact, to underscore the importance of this command, love one another, there was an episode where a teacher, a, a lawyer came up to Jesus and said, well, what's the greatest commandment? He's trying to test Jesus. And Jesus said, well, what do the scriptures say? And he says, you shall, you know, Jesus told him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. But in the upper room, when Jesus was meeting with his disciples, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Okay, that doesn't sound new. But then he says this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's nothing particularly new about the command that we're to love one another. What is new is the standard Jesus set. He raises the bar and he says, the standard by which you should love one another is the way I have loved you. His love is an entirely different order of magnitude from simply loving your neighbor as yourself. It's a much greater love. And if we love one another with that kind of love, that's compelling evidence to the world around us that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we're his disciples, that he is at work in our lives. We are called to love one another the very same way he has loved us. Now, what does it mean to love someone? We, we throw that word around a lot, right? Uh, I love you. What does it mean biblically when we talk of agape love? What, what is that love? What's involved in that love. It involves that you care about people. You have a sincere concern for your brother's well-being and for his joy. 
You're genuinely concerned for his well-being and for his joy. In fact, your joy is wrapped up in his joy. You derive joy from bringing joy to one whom you love. You derive joy from expressing that love and blessing a brother or sister. Now, it's not just a concern for their well-being. It's an actual commitment to contribute to the well-being, to the joy of another person. It's investing in their lives. It's not simply sentimental feelings. It's not kind contemplations. It's love takes action for the benefit of the person that you say that you love. It has to be expressed if it's going to be real. But there's another shade of meaning in this word love that I want you to think about for a moment. It's the idea of imputing value in another person. It's not looking and saying, this person is attractive. This person is appealing to me. This person has something of value that I want, so I'm going to love them and benefit from them loving me back. That's how the world loves. All right? But rather, it's imputing value to other people. Not just people that you enjoy, not just people that make you feel good when you spend time with them, because they can contribute something to your life in some way. They're easy to love. But there are others that are are not so easy to love. They're they're not so uh, warm and fuzzy, not so attractive uh, to us, not so fulfilling. Remember Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. But then he went on and he laid down his life, not for friends, but for enemies. Romans 5, Paul says, uh, he describes this greater display of love. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not look at us and recognize value and say, I want that person on my team. I want that person in my family. He looked at us and saw wretches. He saw a hot mess or a cold mess. And he loved us in spite of ourselves. And in fact, and this is what I want you to get hold of, we were not worthy of his death. There's not a one of us in the world that is worthy of Jesus dying for us. But he regarded it worth it to him to die for us because he imputed value to us. He valued us even though we were not valuable. Does that make sense? He's not looking for anything from you that says, ah, this is what I can derive from this person. He is simply saying, I am counting this person worth it in my eyes to give myself for them. I impute value to them. That is the selflessness of Christ-like love. See, we weren't Jesus' friends. We were ungodly. We were sinners. In fact, in verse 10 in Romans 5, it says we were enemies, yet he loved us. He derived no essential value from us at all. There was a, I think I mentioned this recently, there was a a song on Christian radio about 10 or 15 years ago that he saw the eagle in me, the strong and mighty eagle. It's like he saw something in me that nobody else saw, and so he loved me and, you know, No, he saw dead turkey buzzards in me and loved us anyway. He derived no essential value from us, but he imputed value to us. Even though we were utterly unworthy, he regarded it worth to him to die, 
to redeem us. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. Because he set his love upon us. And Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? It was the anticipation of our redemption and of bringing us to himself in glory as a radiant bride. Not what we had to offer, what he was going to do in us and his rejoicing over us with singing. That's his love. That is Christ-like agape love. It, yes, it places the needs of others before our, our own. Yes, but it does more. It values others. It cherishes others. It loves them the way Jesus loves us as a response to his love for us. So the gospel message by which we were saved is a call to love people the same way that Jesus has loved us. But then John does something really interesting here. He, he, he seems to change subject. He draws this sharp contrast. You know, we're to love as Christ loved us. And then he says, but don't be like Cain. Look at verse 12 and 13. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now let me say here, you probably won't ever again in your Christian walk hear two messages in the same day that talk about Cain. And it was purely not planned on my part. Okay? But look at Cain. Uh, for a minute, we're looking at Jesus, and suddenly John says, don't be like Cain. It almost feels like whiplash. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? He says, love one another. But don't be like Cain. He was a murderer. He committed what we call fratricide, killing his own brother. But notice where the impetus to kill his brother came from. Cain was of the evil one. He was jealous because Abel was righteous and he was evil, and so he hated his brother. So here it is. We're of Christ. Jesus first loved us. 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because he first loved us. And because he first loved us, we must also love one another. But Cain was not of Christ. He was of the evil one. And the evil one, Satan, is a fountain of all hatred. He was a murderer. And so Cain followed suit. And so basically we find John holding up. Here's Jesus who loves. Here's Cain who murders. Take your pick. Who are you going to be like? And then almost as a side note in verse 13 he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Cain hated Abel for his righteousness. Don't be surprised if the world hates you just as much. If you're going to live for Christ, if your deeds are righteous, if your obedience to the Lord, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if the impact of your life brings conviction to other people, they may not like you. They might even hate you. If they hate righteousness, they'll probably hate you. If they hate Christ, they'll probably hate you if they know you're following him faithfully. Even if you try to love them, they may return your love for hatred. Turn with me to John chapter 15, if you would. Same author, different time. In the upper room, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, giving them some last marching orders and some last information, sharing of his heart. And in John 15, verse 18, our Lord says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The word, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
They'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised if they treat you the way they treated me. Don't expect them to treat you better than how they treated me. And so John repeats that. Have you ever had that experience? You really worked hard to be kind to someone who's not a Christian. You worked hard to show them love, and they gave you hatred in return. You expressed kindness, and they threw that back in your face. John says here, number one, don't expect people to treat you better than they treated Jesus. Jesus says, don't take it personally. It's not really about you. It's about their rebellion against him. And then we find in Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised as if something unusual is happening, but rather rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. But we're not to be like Cain. We're to be like Christ, which means we love. And that love is the proof of life. Look at verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. When John says, we know, he's expressing certainty. He's stating something, this is beyond dispute. Nobody's going to argue with this. It's like saying, you can be sure of this. Well, what is it that we can be sure of? The evidence that we pass from death to life is this, that we love the brothers. It's an unmistakable fruit of saving grace. We're attracted to those whom Jesus has set his love upon. There's a filial connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's interesting the way he refers to conversion here. He says, we have passed out of death to life. We see the very same imagery in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God who's rich in mercy made us alive in Christ by grace. You've been saved. And John tells us, and evidence that this has happened is that we love the brothers. Now, I've heard all my life, if you ever wrestle with doubts about your salvation, go read 1 John. The reality is 1 John has 19 distinct tests. This is how you can know you're a Christian. And yes, if you pass all those tests, then you could have a, a great sense of assurance. The reality is, you might read those tests and come away going, wow, I don't measure up. And you could end up doubting your salvation. I think 1 John is helpful to understanding assurance, but it can also be helpful for dislodging a misplaced assurance. But here's one of the tests that demonstrates whether or not faith in Christ is genuine. Do you love the brothers? Do you love the sisters? Do you love your fellow believers? Do you love the people that Jesus loves because Jesus loves them? As his image is being formed and shaped in you, do you love the image of Christ being short, formed and shaped in your brother or your sister, even if there's nothing else in the whole world that you have in common? You have the most important thing in common. Now you might look at that and go, wow, I've got a long way to go. Well, we all do, right? We're all on the way. Sanctification is a process. But is that kernel, that genuine, legitimate love for the brothers present in your life? Do you take serious the instruction of our Lord here? And as John echoes Jesus' instruction, do you take that seriously? Is your life characterized by this kind of Christ-like love? 
That's a selective love. It's for the brothers. It's expressed to those who are also in Christ. But beyond that one discriminating factor, it is indiscriminate. We love all of the brothers, not just the ones who are Reformed Baptists, not just the ones who are in our particular group, not just the ones who are comfortable and make us feel comfortable, not just the ones that, and you can fill in the blank. We love the brothers. We love the sisters. You know, Jesus called us to love our enemies also, right? But that's not really what John is talking about here. And so I'm not even going to go further with that right now. The text here is, to call, is, is a call to love our fellow believers as an evidence that we are in Christ. And again, there are Christians who are easier to love than others. But Jesus calls us to love every single one as he loves us. Now, there are a lot of contrasts in this passage. If you go back and read through it, we, we find the contrast of love in verse 11 and not hatred, but murder. Love and murder. We find the contrast in verse 11, righteous deeds of Abel and the wicked deeds, or evil deeds of Cain. Verse 14, we find the contrast of death and life. And so I'd ask you, which of these describes you? Death or life? Love or murder? Have you passed from death into life, or are you still abiding in death? Well, how do you know? John says, well, do you love the brothers? Is that a reality in your life? Or is your life characterized by self-centeredness, looking out for yourself, a self-focus? Why should I love that person? What did they ever do for me? That's no expression of life. That's the kind of thinking that we would hear in Cain's mouth. Is your life characterized by that self-centeredness, that self-focus, or is it characterized by Christ-like, selfless love for other people? John says something in verse 15 that's really sobering. He says, essentially, a refusal to love is tantamount to murder. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. An unloving heart is a murderous heart. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor Jamie. It says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. It doesn't say simply if you don't love them. I, I don't hate anybody. I, I just don't care about people that much. Well, you know, it's been said that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's apathy. Well, an apathetic heart is a hateful heart because it despises others and says, why should I love that person? It may not be a seething hatred like Cain had for Abel, but it's still a hateful heart, and the seeds of murder reside there. Well, yeah, but, but, but there's some people, they're just annoying. They get under my skin. Does that let you off the hook? Verse 14 says, whoever does not love abides in death. It, that failure, that refusal to love, it, it's tantamount to hatred, and hatred is tantamount to murder. Tantamount means essentially equivalent, the same as. And no murderer can be considered a Christian. A hateful person cannot be considered a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold that thought because John goes further. He says the greatest display of love that anyone has ever seen is the death of the Lord Jesus for us. Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Now, we referred to that already in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love for us and that while Christ, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how we know what love looks like. This is the prime example of love. 
Now, Jesus didn't lie, die for people who were already his friends. It was while we were yet sinners. We were in rebellion. We were enemies. And he died to make us his friends, to redeem us from unrighteousness, to conform us to his image, and to win our love and our devotion to him. Now, what was involved in Jesus laying down his life for us? What did he do? What did it require for him to do that? Well, first of all, he was God the Son eternally in heaven, and he had to leave the joy of heaven for a time. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and took on human flesh. He laid aside the joy of heaven, of being worshipped. He laid aside all of his rights and prerogatives as God, and he looked and lived like a man. He came and served rather than being served, which is what he actually deserved. He learned obedience through what was suffered. The the lawgiver placed himself under the law, submitted to that law, and learned obedience. He was already perfect as God, but as a man, he learned human obedience and achieved perfect righteousness. And then he did something truly amazing, though he was sinless. He accepted the punishment that we deserved, though he did not. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is often regarded as one of the greatest Christological passages in the Bible, and it is. But did you ever think about the fact that it's simply an illustration? Think about that as I read. Philippians 2 verse 3 we read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what we're called to do. Have the same mind in you or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, now he's saying, well, let me show you what it looks like to do nothing from selfish ambition. Let me show you what humility of mind that regards, puts other people's needs before your own looks like. And he takes us to the example of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. doesn't mean he was not equal with God. It means that even though he was equal with God, if you've ever seen a child and you take his toy away and he goes, this is mine, you can't have it. That toy really is that child's. He's grasping and clinging to it. Jesus didn't do that. He willingly laid aside his prerogatives and his rights as God. He didn't regard that equality with God in terms of his treatment, his worship, as something to cling on to, to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He didn't stop being God. He laid aside all of his rights, all of his prerogatives, all of his glory by taking on the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, or to the point of death, even death on a cross. His was a costly love. It cost him everything. Taking the form of a servant when he deserved the service of all. If men had really recognized who he was, if they had understood, recognized his glory, they would have fallen at his feet, and yet they didn't. He had no form that anyone be attracted to him. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, you remember Jesus prays essentially, Father, I want my glory back. 
Glorify me now with the glory I had with you before the world began. Every day he lived with that essential awareness that he had dwelt in perfect eternal glory up until the time of his incarnation. And he laid that glory aside and he says, Father, I want my glory back. He did that for you and me. That's what his love cost us. If loving somebody is a little inconvenient, it, it, it might mean laying aside some dignity. Really? It's not like emptying yourself like Jesus did, is it? Jesus, in love, counted us more significant than himself, if I can say that reverently. He didn't say, why should I give my life for these wicked, ungrateful wretches? He imputed value to us where there was none. He regarded us as significant enough that he would even give his own life for us, even though we were utterly insignificant. That's the essence of humility. And that's an essential component to Christ-like love. Pride is not very loving. Humility is essential if we would love people the way Jesus does. In love, secondly, he, pre- he placed our interests above his own. That's, a, again, a demonstration of his humility and of love. And then Paul tells us, now you and I are to have that very same mindset, that very same attitude, and then he proceeds to illustrate it through the incarnation and the life and the death of our Savior. If you want to understand Christ-like love, look at the cross. Meditate upon the cross of our Savior and what it did, what he did for us on the cross and why he went there for us. Consider how great his love had to have been to undertake that kind of suffering for you and for me. What was in it for him? What did he have to gain? Well, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He who was already infinite and complete was looking for an even greater joy that could come by redeeming us. Love rejoices in being a blessing to those you love. That's the greatest demonstration of love that's ever happened. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you and I are called to love the very same way Jesus loved, verse 16 again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That word ought speaks of a financial debt. It's an obligation that you're required to pay, all right? And in this context, love is a debt that we owe. Now, my question is, to whom do we owe that debt? The answer is, we owe that debt to the one who first loved us. And that obligation is not simply to love him back, it's to love all of those whom he loves. He loved us, he laid down his life for us, and because we have received that costly gift of love, how can we not also love those for whom he laid down his life and whom he has loved. Jesus laid down his life for us and through John, through, through the, the work of the Spirit, calls you and me to do the very same thing, to embrace, to reflect this costly love. It is an obligation laid upon us by our gracious and loving Father. 
And we're to love one another so much that we are willing, even as Jesus did for us, to lay down our lives for one another. See, again, it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he doesn't say, and so we ought to love one another too. He says, so we ought to do what love does, lay down our life for the brothers. Have you ever loved anybody sacrificially? Have you ever loved anybody in a way that really cost you something? Where you had to get outside of your comfort zone and truly give of yourself for the benefit of the other person and your concern for them and your care for them was such that you rejoiced, that your joy was rooted in their joy because you truly cared about the person you were showing love to. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Not when it's convenient, not when it's easy, not when the person's attractive, not when it doesn't cost very much. That's not what our Lord did at all. This was an extravagant love, a costly love. And hear me, John is saying here, that should not be anything unusual for us. That should be the normal way of life for those who are being conformed to his image. Now, I know some of you, are, you're naturally reserved. You, you're happy to stand up and serve but the idea of getting up close and personal might make you a little uncomfortable. Well, that's what love does. It gets out of our comfort zones. It moves toward those who are in need. And it seeks to meet those needs with kindness, with compassion, with grace. It drives us out of those comfort zones so we'll move toward other people. And the evidence that you have the love of Christ in you is that you love the brothers. Not just the lovable brothers, we've already said that, not just the ones who are easy to love. Some of us are not so easy to love sometimes. If you know my wife, you know she's really easy to love. I mean, somebody who doesn't love Lydia, they got a problem, right? She's married to someone who's not always quite so easy to love. But she loves me anyway. Wonder of wonders. And they're Christians who can rub you the wrong way. Christians can irritate you. They can disappoint you. They will sin against you. We will sin against one another. I remember the, uh, years ago, Wayne Mack, a biblical counselor, spoke here, and he quoted this poem I've never forgot. He said, uh, to dwell above with saints I love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints I know, that's a different story. <laughs> well, we have to love the saints below, whatever the story might be. John says, love the way Jesus loved. That love is patient. That love is kind. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It's slow to take offense. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christ-like love never fails. Christ-like love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know that kind of love? Or do you give up on people? Do you persevere and bear all things? Because people are slow to change. We just are. Or do you take offense? You bear a grudge. You pull back. You withdraw. Jesus does the opposite. He moves toward us. He loves us in kindness. And he calls you and me to do the same thing. He loves the difficult people. <laughs> Redeemed us. And, and that's what he calls us to do too. But I want you to see in verse 18, this love has to be tangible. Christ-like love has to take action. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not enough to talk a good game. I make it a point every time I say goodbye to my wife to go out the door. I say, I love you. And she says it back. 
If something terrible were to happen, I want the last thing that she heard me say is, I love you. And I want to remember the last thing she said to me was, I love you. But if all we do is say it and we don't express it, it doesn't mean a thing. Love takes loving action. It must be expressed in deed and in truth. It seeks to bless those who you love. Now, you might say, well, that person doesn't really deserve my love. That's not the point. Is that your brother or sister in Christ? You and I have an obligation to love them. Jesus loves us anyway. We are obliged to do the same. And he gives us one example. There are many, many ways this can bear itself out. But one example is in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, it's not enough to talk a good game. Christ-like love is sacrificial. It's uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes it's costly. Now, when John speaks of having the world's goods, what do you think he's talking about? He certainly might be talking about material possessions. You have finances, another person needs them, or some other material stuff. But the world's goods could be an ability that you have that somebody else may not have. They need your help. A time, you may have time. I'm someone who is overwhelmed and need somebody to come alongside and give them some time. Or maybe they're shut in and they need somebody who'll spend the time just to sit with them and talk and read scripture and pray. It might be your friendship. Maybe you're very comfortable making friends and you see a brother or sister who's not so they, they just don't know how to make friends quite as easily. But that's, that's a, 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 a kingdom commodity you have, the ability to make friends. They needed your friendship. And your friendship can be something of tremendous value in somebody else's life. So when you see your brother or your sister in need, how do you respond? Do you close your heart or do you open your heart? Do you close your hands or do you open your hands? Selflessness, selfishness closes its heart. Christ-like love opens both the heart and the hands. We don't just talk about love. We have to put it into action. Let me finish up with a few questions. Number one, are you loving? Does love characterize the way you treat people? Is that the normal interaction that you have with particularly the saints? Do you have a peculiar love for God's people because you see Christ being formed in them? If I were to follow you around for a week, what would I see? Would I conclude that you're a loving person? Would I see you loving believers the way Jesus has loved you, opening your heart, opening your hands? Or would I see you close your heart? Would I see you make excuses? Would I see you like the Pharisee on the uh, or the, or the, or the uh, Levite on, and the Good Samaritan going across the road and passing by on the other side because we just don't want to get involved. Another question, is there anyone you find difficult to love? There are a lot of people you love. You love loving them, but there are some that just, man, that's a, that's a tough one. Maybe you need to learn to think about love differently, beginning with how and why Jesus loves you, because that's how he calls us to love one another. Third question, have you passed from death to life? Do you know for sure you're in Christ? Well, as you consider this test, one of many, 
Is love characteristic of your life or is it not? Have you passed out of life or out of death into life or are you remaining in death in a loveless existence? Now, some of you, you might say, you know, Pastor, I'm, conv- I'm confident I'm a believer. I know that I am, but I, I don't love people the way I should. Well, you know what? Sanctification's a process. I've said many times, we're all half-baked and we're all semi-sanctified, but we're on the way. Is the principle of sincere Christ-like love in you, and you yearn to see that bear more fruit, and you labor, and as I've spoken tonight, you've maybe you've been uh, uh, convicted a bit, and you, Lord, give me such a heart to love people that reflects a true love for Christ, because you see what He's done for you. But if you close your heart, how can you say the love of Christ is in you. I'll ask you also how, in some practical ways, how can you cultivate Christ-like love this week in deed and in truth? What are some ways that you can express love in tangible ways, ways that meet the needs of those around you? Love responds to need. And it determines, I will, as God enables me, I'll meet that need as best I can. So what needs do you see around you? Here at the church, in the church family, maybe in your own family and other believers that you know, be specific. Who would God allow you to love this week and be a tangible blessing in their lives? Let us love one another, even as Christ has loved us.